You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Dayton, El Paso, Gilroy, Virginia Beach. And that's just this summer. I've been doing this podcast for almost a decade, and I've opened the show, I don't know how many times, talking or having to talk about the latest mass shooting, ranting about the NRA and Republicans who refuse to pass the kind of gun safety regulations, background checks, closing the gun show loopholes, state storage, liability insurance, the kind of gun safety regulations supported by super majorities of Americans including majorities of Republicans, gun owners, and for fuck's sake, NRA members. Actually, this morning I thought I'd take a look at the timeline of mass shootings in the United States since we started doing this show, and then guess at how many times I'd had to open the show talking about guns. Turns out there have been 120 mass shootings in the United States over the last 10 years, which means I could have opened one out of every five shows with a rant about guns. That was in Oaks, California. Pittsburgh, Parkland, it never stops. I was in Austria for the last few weeks to see friends, hide out, get some writing done. And a week ago, right before the mass shooting at the Gilroy Garlic Festival, I said to one of my friends that there's always this moment that sneaks up on me when I'm over there when it occurs to me that I haven't walked into a store or sat in a restaurant or seen a show and thought, hope I don't get shot since I left the United States. And the crazy thing is, This usually occurs to me only after I start feeling a familiar kind of anxiety. I start to feel like, oh, fucking shit, there's something important that I forgot to do. And then it's like, oh, right, I forgot to worry about getting shot to death everywhere I go. It doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to live like this. We don't have to live with the constant nagging fear of gun violence or the constant horrifying reality of it. As David Frum wrote in The Atlantic this weekend, there is one developed country and only one in which it is not only legal, but easy and convenient to amass a private arsenal of mass slaughter. That country also happens to be the one and the only one regularly afflicted by mass slaughters perpetrated by aggrieved individuals. More guns, more killing, fewer guns, less killing, Frum writes. Everybody else has that figured out. Americans, and only Americans, refuse to do so. Austria has racists, and Austria has mentally ill people, and Austria has a right-wing movement, a nationalist, populist, racist movement that has put demagogues in power. Austria also has video games and the internet and drag queens and gay marriage, and yes, there are actually Republicans out there blaming gay marriage and drag queens for El Paso and Dayton. What Austria doesn't have is mass shootings. And it's not like it's impossible to get a gun in Austria. Austria actually has, according to CNN, the most relaxed gun laws in Europe. And here's what those relaxed gun laws look like. Anyone who wants to buy a gun in Austria must pass a criminal history background check, submit to a mental health survey, pass a course on safe gun handling and safe gun storage, and install a safe gun storage system, a gun safe or locking case, in their home before they're allowed to buy a gun. And anyone who buys a rifle or shotgun has to do all that, but also has to wait three days before picking it up. Those are the EU's laxest gun regulations, ladies and gentlemen, and they're the reason why mass shootings 
while not an impossibility anywhere people have guns, aren't a constant nagging fear there or a daily reality, despite all the drag shows in Vienna. You know what else we shouldn't have to live with? A racist piece of shit in the Oval Office cranking up his fellow white supremacists and inciting violence against black and brown people. We're constantly told that the president's number one job is keeping Americans safe. Our racist president is getting Americans killed. Take it away, Beto O'Rourke. This president, his, his open racism is also an invitation to violence. We've seen a rise in hate crimes every single one of the last three years. So, Joe, you're, you're absolutely right. The writing has been on the wall since his maiden speech coming down that escalator describing That's Mexican right. immigrants as rapists and criminals. Uh, th- the actions that follow cannot surprise us. And, and anyone who is surprised um, is, is part of this problem right now, including members of the media who ask, Hey, Beto, do you think the president is racist? Well, Jesus Christ, of course he's racist. He's been racist from day one before day one when he was questioning whether Barack Obama was born in the United States. He's trafficked in this stuff from from the very beginning. And and we are reaping right now what he has sown and what his supporters in Congress have sown. We have to put a stop to it. Set aside Russia and obstruction of justice and violations of the emoluments clause. House Democrats can and should impeach the motherfucker just, just for getting Americans killed in Charlottesville, at the Tree of Life Synagogue, at the Walmart in El Paso. The House can impeach, of course, but only the Senate can convict and remove the president. So it's not worth it, some say, because Moscow Mitch, Putin's bitch, McConnell won't allow it. Dems should impeach the motherfucker anyway. Call Mitch McConnell's bluff. Because what's going on here is this. Republicans are hoping they can lock in white minority rule in this country through voter suppression, Supreme Court-approved gerrymandering, hacking the census. Their goal is to lock in white minority rule before the country becomes minority-majority in the next 20 years. If they can manage to do that, then sticking with Trump now could keep them in power forever. But if they can't manage it, and we should all be working hard to make sure they can't, Who have you registered to vote today? If they can't lock in white minority rule before the clock runs out, standing with Trump now, standing with Trump at his impeachment trial in the Senate, that's going to do to the Republican Party just what Lindsey Graham said it would do to the Republican Party back in 2016. If we nominate Trump, Graham tweeted during the 2016 GOP primary, we will get destroyed and we will deserve it. That was Lindsey then. Lindsey now is one of Trump's most servile turd polishers. Trump can barely pinch it off before Lindsey's tongue is all over it, polishing it for us. What do they have on him, I wonder? Briefly. I wonder very briefly, because I think we all know what they have on Lindsey. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as much show and no ads, Dr. Debbie Herbenick from Indiana University joins us to talk about people with high libidos and people who don't like their high libidos and if there's anything someone can do to lower their high libido. All that coming up on today's show. Uh, hi, Van. Uh, I'm a bisexual female in my 30s living in Southern California, and I don't know if I need to see a certain person I met again. So it was Pride Weekend uh, down here, and I met a guy. <laughs> Whoops. And 
Um, it was really cool. We were at the bar. I went to the bar uh, late night. I work nights, so you know, by the time I get off, everybody's wasted at the bar anyway. And this guy looking at me from down the bar. Eventually, we end up talking. Says I'm the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Like kind of a dream, but he's leaning in really hard. It's really hard, like so hard that the person next to me feels me leaning on them. I kind of write it off to being drunk. We end up making out, sort of hooking up, but well, he doesn't work very well with alcohol. We'll just put it that way. So we didn't really like hook up, hook up. It was, there was no, no PIV. Anyway, he says he wants to take me on a date. So we go on this date. We have dinner. And the whole time, he's just like touching me, scratching me, leaning it again. Again, I end up like elbowing the person next to us at the bar repeatedly because I'm leaning away. Every time I lean away, he just leans in deeper. And (laughs) I I tell him like three or four times, I'm like, look, he's like, I'm just really affectionate. And I was like, affection and sex are two different things. And after that, got really awkward. And it just, the conversation just kind of dropped and then it was kind of over. You know, I was doing research and like people, they have this hard time drawing this line between affection and sex. And like men and women look at it differently. And there's all these psychological articles about, you know, women want affection so that they feel like they want to have sex. And men give affection hoping to get sex at least in heterosexual coupling. Well, I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, my thought, what I'm sitting here thinking is, what I'm wondering about is why you left this shitty second date with this shitty person thinking you had any research you needed to do. Researching the different ways men and women approach sex. Now, when you make those kinds of generalizations about 3.5 billion people on the one hand, 3.5 billion people on the other hand, there will be hundreds of millions of exceptions – A lot of those exceptions are going to be queer people like you or listeners to this program who are not all queer. But yeah, there's research out there and there are researchers who argue that men get horny and want to have sex. And a lot of women, particularly in long-term relationships, start having sex and then get horny. And these are different modes. But there are men who operate in that sort of quote-unquote female way and women who operate in the quote-unquote male way. Again, tens of millions of exceptions. But these things may be broadly true, particularly in the context of a long-term relationship. None of that excuses what this guy was doing. What you chalked up to him being drunk on Pride Weekend and being a little touchy and you were willing to tolerate on Pride Weekend, he demonstrated to you on a follow-up date when he was sober is just the way he rolls. Not only is he grabby, not only is he touchy in such a way that it makes the woman he's on a date with uncomfortable and the people around her that she's leaning into to get the fuck away from him uncomfortable. When the woman he's on a date with tells him to back off and knock it off, he refuses. That doesn't obligate that woman to go home and do some research into the different ways men and women approach hooking up or dating or sex in the context of a second date or a long-term relationship. You don't have to make excuses for him, which which kind of sounds like what you're doing in a long and roundabout way that took you to Google and Encyclopedia Britannica and wherever else your research led you. All you need to do is block this guy's number on your phone. All you need to do after a shitty second date, really, I think you can ghost on a guy after a shitty second date, particularly a guy who behaved the way this guy did, and forget the fuck about him. And then ask yourself why, after a shitty date with a shitty guy who revealed himself through his actions and his statements to be disrespectful of your personal space and your stated boundaries, why you would go home and start 
Googling excuses for him. You didn't need to do that, and you don't need to do that in the future, and I would encourage you not to do that in the future. And P.S., fuck that guy. Hi, Dan. 30-year-old female here. Um, My boyfriend and I have been together four years. We just had this ridiculous fight the other night. He just exploded irrationally with anger. He was doing some home repair stuff, and it went really badly, um, and he just completely melted down. Um, I was on a Skype call for my business at the time, and he was storming through the house, slamming doors, yelled a few things at me while I was on the call, to the point that the woman I was talking with noticed and acknowledged that it it was happening, just full toddler-level meltdown. Um, After he said he was pissed at me for not leaving enough time to help him with whatever home repair thing he was doing from start to finish, and he's pissed that I left him to do it alone when I went to go do my call. We've been together four years. He's never done this before. This is totally out of left field. Um, We haven't spoken in two days now, and I just don't know how to react or what to say. Um, I don't know if it's a relationship extinction event. It definitely could be, but I just need to figure out how do I respond in a way that's not enabling him to do it again, that's healthy, that's mature of me to really lay that boundary. I think I'm just kind of too close to it now to figure this out for myself. It's often the case when someone explodes irrationally with anger, when they react with a degree of anger, slamming doors, stomping around, freaking out like a toddler, that seems out of all proportion to what's happening in the moment or what just happened or whatever wrong they feel they might have been dealt at your hands, that they're usually angry about something else and they're having a hard time expressing it and they're bottling it up and then all the rage comes spilling out at what seems, I think subconsciously, like a decent opportunity to to, to express that rage, to, to vent some of the anger. But that's very confusing, of course, for the person on the receiving end of that disproportionate, seemingly irrational anger because your partner is freaking out about X when the real issue is Y. And so if you don't want this to be a relationship extinction level event, if you are not ready after this one giant meltdown to pull the plug, you go to him and you sit down with him and you say, what was that about? What was that really about? Are there other issues? And you can have a conversation where you draw them out, where you are solicitous and you listen to them. Maybe they're having a hard time bringing something up. Maybe they've tried to bring something up in the past and you've shut down that conversation or you've reacted angrily. I'm not trying to justify your boyfriend's behavior in that moment, but you know, there's a lot of yin-yang push-pull in a relationship. And sometimes people bottle up their anger, not because they're particularly fond of bottling up their anger, but they feel they can't express it in the relationship. And I don't know what the other dynamics in your relationship are like emotionally. Maybe he reacted with irrational anger to that event, but maybe his bottling up his anger, which then burst out in this shitty way at that stupid moment, maybe he had a reason for bottling it up and maybe you contributed in some way. Like like I said, draw him out, have this conversation. You should make it clear in this conversation that you are not going to put up with or live with this. The fact that you're four years into this relationship and this has never happened before encourages me to think this may be anomalous behavior on his part, that it may not be a pattern. Typically when someone is emotionally abusive, the warning signs come early and the explosions, the seemingly irrational anger, that that person sort of blowing up at you about unpredictable shit so that you're always on eggshells around them, that happens a lot sooner than four years in. So I'm not giving him the benefit of the doubt right now. I'm giving your relationship 
the benefit of the doubt. So go to him, put it all on the table, tell him that was unacceptable. You're not going to live with that, with the fear that that could happen at any time for seemingly trivial reasons. So you want to know what was going on for him and you want an assurance from him that that won't happen again and that you two will find in the moment more constructive ways to process and handle your anger. And if there's some reason he's been bottling it up, you want to address that too. Hey, Dan, 29-year-old female calling from Florida. I'm married. Me and my husband have been married for two years together for seven, and we've been doing the open relationship thing, but I suffer from anxiety, and my husband is pretty normal. So my question is, how would I go about finding a therapist that is going to be sex positive and open that I can talk to about the anxieties that are surfacing because of our open relationship. I've already am seeing a psychiatrist and I'm on medication that is working good for me. Um, I've done talk therapy in the past. And so I definitely feel like I would just benefit from having a third party, um, non-biased person to walk me through, again, the anxieties that are coming up because of this open relationship. Um, not really about the open relationship, but more about anxieties about myself. Um, so what would be your best suggestion for finding a sex positive talk therapist? Truly the best place to start if you want to find a sex positive or kink positive or poly or open relationship positive therapist is asect.org. That's A-A-S-E-C-T dot org. That's the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And they have state by state, region by region listings. And it's a pretty sex positive, kink positive, poly and open relationship positive organization. So there's some self-sorting that goes on before people even list themselves with ASECT. That said, your first interaction with a therapist or a counselor is usually these days via their website, via email, and you're engaging them. You're hiring them and you are allowed to ask them a few questions via email before your first session. So go to ASEC.org, find a few therapists or counselors in your area and send them a few emails saying you're looking for a sex positive, open relationship positive counselor or therapist that you can speak with. And you wanted to know what their take is on open relationships prior to your first appointment. And I promise you, if it's a therapist you'd want to make a first appointment with or a 44th appointment with, you'll get a thoughtful email unpacking their position, their take on open relationships. And if you don't, there's your answer. But that's where to start. ASEC.org is where to start. Also, if you have friends who are in open or poly relationships, a lot of people in open poly relationships have seen counselors and therapists. There's a lot of processing you have to do in open and poly land. And you may have friends in open and poly land that you're not aware of who've already sat down with counselors and therapists. And just a little honesty, there's no shame in seeking out counseling or therapy. It's to your credit that you're seeking out counseling and therapy to help you guys address issues in your open relationship. Just asking other people that you know in the open or poly community if they've ever sought counseling. And if so, could they refer you to someone if they had a good interaction with a person? That's another great way to find that open or poly positive counselor or therapist. Hi, Dan. I'm a cisgendered straight female from the West Coast. Until recently, I've been in a relationship with a guy for two years. We've gone through quite a bit in this short time. One major event being that I found out that he was full-on dating another girl behind my back throughout the first year. I was going through some personal issues at the time and suffered a low self-esteem, hence my giving him several more chances to be the partner I desired and he kept promising to be. He refused to let me go and I wasn't over him, so I blindly gave him my trust again. 
I moved in with him late last year. I didn't seem to witness any questionable behavior. I also chose not to obsess over it as I began working on self-love and making strides in my self-improvement. Despite everything, I'm not the type to snoop, so I let the past go to the best of my ability, but upon living together and getting to know him better, I discovered that I just flat out don't feel like he's a good man, and I don't really like his character very much at the end of the day. I've been actually very troubled by this and haven't had the heart somehow to leave, again, despite everything. A couple weeks ago, he was passed out on the couch, and I went to empty my pipe in the ashtray on his desk where his phone was plugged in, face up, with the screen on, unlocked. I know that sounds strange, but I promise that snooping through his phone was the furthest thing from my mind at the moment. I looked down and see messages from what appeared to be females. So I opened one and another and another. Turns out it was the Grinder app. And he was on there exchanging dick pics and talking about hooking up with men of all ages and several transgendered women uh, during the afternoon while I work. I was honestly shocked as I had no idea that he swung that way. Also, I hadn't suspected anything this time infidelity-wise. So I finally got my out. I confronted him and broke up with him. Once again, he was begging for more chances and claiming that he can change, but I'm just fresh out of chances for the guy. I guess my question for you boils down to this. Um, is this more common than I thought? Seemingly straight, almost homophobic males secretly pursuing dick? My best friend is married to a man who is similar in that macho way, and she has also painfully discovered his closeted love and desire for cock. I have no issue at all with people's sexual and romantic preferences in any way, but this is just not something I'm interested in encountering in my own romantic relationships. Is this just how men are now based on what you witness? And sexuality aside, do you have any tips for finding a good, honest man that's capable of true monogamy these days? A lot of gay men wished they lived in a world where it was common for straight guys to love dick or want dick, secretly want dick, that every hot straight guy on the planet, including the homophobic ones, are secretly on the down low or all over Grinder. Now, if you get on Grinder or back in the day you got on Craigslist, it wasn't that hard to find straight identified guys, guys with girlfriends and wives who were looking to get blown and in some cases looking to do the blowing themselves. There are a lot of closeted bi guys out there. Most guys who are bi, who are in committed, opposite-sex, long-term relationships, aren't out to their partners. And along comes the internet 20 years ago, and it made it really easy for these guys, easier for these guys to, to live a less risky double life. They didn't have to be seen going in and out of a gay bar or a gay bathhouse or a notorious downtown dirty bookstore or risk getting busted in a park under a bush with a dude to get their same-sex rocks off. They can arrange to get their same-sex rocks off on their phones discreetly. The problem, of course, is you leave a digital trail and sometimes you pass out on the couch with your phone sitting open, charging, and messages coming in, and your girlfriend or wife sees that. And with cheating in the past, you know, snooping is always wrong. People shouldn't snoop. You're a bad girl for snooping or a bad adult woman for snooping, but sometimes when you snoop, you find out things you kind of had a right to know or a pressing need to know. The snooping is always wrong, except when it's retroactively justified by whatever it is someone found. Your husband has a secret second family in another city. 
kind of had a right to know that. And if you found out by snooping, I think the snooping is the smaller or negligible or non-existent in that context offense. Anyway, yeah, this is a thing. This is a thing that happens. That doesn't mean all straight identified guys are secretly sucking or hungering for cock. There is, however, a lot of research out there, a growing body of research that shows that guys who are kind of homophobic, guys who perform homophobia, are likelier to have same-sex attractions and desires than chill straight guys who aren't homophobic. Sometimes when someone is homophobic, they're throwing up flack. It's camouflage. They're trying to distract you from the fact that they may have downloaded the Grinder app onto their phone. You are absolutely justified in leaving this guy. He is who he is. I think he needs to embrace who he is. He's a bisexual guy who isn't interested in or capable of being monogamous. He needs to seek out a partner who wants what he is so that he doesn't have to lie. He doesn't have to hide and he doesn't face decades of the stress of worrying about getting caught. Now, for many homophobic, straight-identified guys who want to have dick or cheat, they don't want to have an honest, ethical, non-monogamous relationship because they don't want their partner to sleep with anybody else. They just want to be able to do this themselves. They want monogamy from a person, but they don't want to be monogamous to that person. And those guys grow up to become terrible, shitty, serial cheaters. And fuck those guys. Or don't fuck those guys. And if you find out you're fucking that guy or dating that guy or living with that guy, leave that guy. I think you did the right thing. As for finding someone who is good at and wants monogamy, they're out there. Monogamy is not natural. Monogamy is a struggle. If you can accept that someone making a monogamous commitment to you doesn't mean that guy isn't attracted to anybody else ever, I think that makes having a monogamous relationship easier. You know, when two people are doing the monogamous thing, it's basically two people who've agreed to stand on one foot together for the rest of their lives. You can do that. It's a bit of a struggle. If somebody touches the ground with their other foot once or twice over the 50 years you were standing on one foot, they were pretty good at standing on one foot. Said this before, if you're with somebody for 50 years, they only cheat on you once or twice. They were good at monogamy, not bad at monogamy. Monogamy is the only thing we tell people they have to execute perfectly throughout their entire lives to be any good at. And that's crazy. So you may find a guy who's good at monogamy, who wants monogamy, who wants to make an honor and keep a monogamous commitment. And that guy may still at some point over the 50 years that you'll be together cheat on you once. I think once can be forgiven. What your boyfriend, your ex-boyfriend was doing habitually, routinely behind your back, I don't think that's forgivable. And I think you were right to break up with him. But going forward into your next monogamous commitment, you aren't going to find perfection. And you aren't going to be perfection either. That doesn't mean he's definitely going to cheat on you. That doesn't mean you're definitely going to cheat on them. But there will be desire and there will be complications. And in all long-term relationships, there are betrayals of all sorts, not just sexual betrayals. And it's forgiveness that makes it possible for a relationship to become a long-term relationship, a truly long-term relationship. So I don't think that you were wrong to forgive this guy and give him a chance to do better after you found him cheating on you the first time. After you found him cheating on you in this way the second time, I think you were absolutely right to leave him. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling because I have a kind of arbitrary question. Every time that I get a new partner, for some reason, the guys are always asking, you know, like, is this the best dick you've ever had? Am I the best sex you've ever had? 
And of course, if you actually like them, then you say, yeah, of course. But do you have to? Because it kind of feels a little bit dumb to tell every single guy he's the best when, you know, he's probably not. So that's my first question. My second question is, what do you think about telling people your body count? Just a simple question like that. I don't think that it's necessary, but they all ask, and then they get very suspicious when you don't want to answer. And I think that you shouldn't have to answer. Let me know your thoughts. Arbitrary questions are my favorite questions. Let's start with the second one, telling people about your body count. Merriam-Webster defines body count as a count of the bodies of killed enemy soldiers. And also, number two definition, less common, the number of persons involved in a particular activity. So if you've only ever had one-on-one sex, if you've never had a three-way, never taken part in group sex, and they ask you for the body count, hopefully they're not asking you about the number of enemy soldiers you've killed. They're asking you about the numbers of people involved in a particular activity, which you could get away with saying two if you've only ever had two people involved at any time that you've been having sex. Body Count is also the name of an American metal band formed in Los Angeles in 1990, fronted by Ice-T. I found that out while I was looking up the definition for body count. Yeah, it's tricky when men ask women how many partners they've had. Now, it is tricky when men ask women how many partners they've had because a lot of men, particularly the men who would ask that question, have a meltdown if they're told the truth. They may have had a lot of sex. They may have had a lot of sex partners, but they don't want to because they are insecure bags of slop. Be with someone who's capable of comparing them to others. They don't want you to have a broad frame of reference. They don't want you to know or be able to tell whether their dick is the best dick out there or they are the best sex you could ever have. I would advise you when a guy asks you, what your body count is or how many partners you've had and hopefully asks how many partners and not your body count to ask him why he's asking you that question and then determine whether it's safe to tell him the truth. And if you don't feel that it's safe to tell him the truth, to tell him how many people you've actually had sex with, then you probably don't want to be having sex with that guy. Go find someone who doesn't ask you that question or asks you about your past sexual experiences because they're interested in who you are sexually and they're excited to hear your stories and they are capable of recognizing that all of your past sexual experiences made you the awesome, sexy person you are now and contributed to your skill set, to your take on sex, to your enjoyment of sex. And they are benefiting from all of those past experiences themselves personally, and so they celebrate them. Find that guy. Find the guy who asks for that reason. And I can't say this with absolute certainty, but my hunch is that a guy who asks if his dick is the best dick you've ever had and if he's the best sex you've ever had, that guy is not secure. That guy is not asking those questions for the right reasons. Best dick I've ever had, best sex I've ever had, anybody – with any sense knows that that's something a person might tell you, but it's not something you put a person on the spot by asking. So when a guy asks you those questions, he's outed himself as an insecure bag of slop. He's outed himself as the kind of guy who probably is going to be angry with you if you tell him the real numbers of people that you've slept with, your actual body count. So not a guy you'd want to be fucking. And I would encourage you to go find some other guy or guys who are a little bit more secure to fuck instead of these guys who've been asking you these rude, impertinent, and insecurity-revealing questions. 
Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-20s trans woman based out of Los Angeles. I recently went and visited my parents' place over in Detroit. And long story short, I went into a dungeon and I bottomed with someone and I forgot to disclose that I'm trans. Now, this person made a little remark, which was fine. They were cool with everything, but they were basically like, hey, you know, you should probably tell your partners. I mean, granted, they were very cool with it, but I honestly forgot. It happens a lot. I forget that there's really anything different about me. Now, I can definitely see a lot of implications that could happen with that, especially like if you don't disclose to someone, they play in a scene, and then later they have, I don't know, maybe some sort of drop and basically change their mind and get, you know, trans panic. I don't know what to really call it. So my question is, do I have to disclose? Am I a bad person for forgetting to disclose that I'm trans? I'm going to make a pretty facile comparison here and forgive me. And I hope it's not offensive to you or other members of the trans community. But when I'm out in public, with my husband and I want to take his hand or I want to give him a kiss goodbye at the airport or wherever, I shouldn't have to look around, but I do. I should live in a world where I can take his hand without worrying about violence, about the reactions of others around me. But I do worry. And so for my own safety, when I'm going to kiss him goodbye, my eyes dart left and right. Now, sometimes they don't. I think at SeaTac Airport in Seattle, where I said goodbye to my husband recently, it's pretty safe for me to kiss him goodbye. But sometimes we're walking down the street in Iowa when we're visiting relatives, or there may be someone walking down the street in Seattle where we live who just washed in from Montana or Wyoming. Not that there are queer positive people in those places and queer people in those places, but you know what I mean. We may be walking down the street in Seattle, and it could be at that moment unsafe for me to take his hand. And I shouldn't have to think about these things. I shouldn't have to look around for my own safety, but I do because I want to be safe. Trans people, are subjected to, as I don't need to tell you, so much violence in this society, in our culture. And trans people, for their own safety, when they're with someone sexually, I think in their own self-interest, should disclose their trans identity. Not as a courtesy, not so that that other person doesn't touch a trans person and get trans cooties, but for your own safety. I shouldn't have to look around and then think twice about taking my husband's hand to protect the delicate sensibilities of some homophobic bigot from why fucking oming. I look around to protect myself. I think the same kind of applies here, that you might want to disclose that you're trans to someone you're going to hook up with in a dungeon or anywhere else, not for them, but for you. Now the person you hooked up with in that dungeon, they clocked you as trans. They didn't have a problem with it. You guys had a great sexual encounter. And then they let you know that maybe you would want to disclose. Maybe they're aware of the violence trans people are subjected to in our society. Maybe they've seen other trans people in Detroit in that dungeon subjected to violence when the person they were with or even just flirting with realized they were trans or was told they were trans. It's not like disclosure immunizes a trans person from violence. Sometimes trans people disclose before intimacy and are still subjected to violence because some people are attracted to trans people and know it subconsciously or consciously, but don't want to admit it or confront it. And some people are shocked to discover that they are attracted to a trans person. So, 
yeah, I'm on the side of disclosure. Again, not to protect them. I'm on the side of disclosure to protect you. Hi, guys. Um, I have a question. Um, I am a 36-year-old straight female married for about 13 years. We have a blended family, a his, mine, and ours. We now have two teenage daughters, one that's going to be 15 and one that's 14. And our oldest one has her first boyfriend. And my husband and I are very much not on the same page about like what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. I was the parent when we did the phones and all that kind of stuff that was like, I'm going to be going through your stuff, probably dropped the ball a little on that because I wasn't doing it. My husband total, like, absolutely not. Like that's their private thing. And I'm like, yeah, they're 14. That is a thing. (laughs) And my daughter ended up getting a heads up that I was going to check her phone. So she wiped it clean, which I find a little, you know, I'm not interested in, what she's actually like necessarily talking about some of the things they did find were actually pretty hurtful, um, being her stepmom and whatnot, but that's not why I'm calling. I'm just more wondering like what's appropriate. My husband and I listen to your show all the time. My husband is very like sex positive and like, you know, everything being safe, which we've talked to our kids about over and over again. And yet we're like at a complete and utter divide because <laughs> My 14-year-old daughter wants, quote-unquote, alone time with her boyfriend. When I was her age, if we wanted alone time, like, you had to get creative. <laughs> and, you know, being in your bedroom with the door closed was not an option. And just, like, curious as to how you, you know, go about doing this. Like, I remember being a teenager. It wasn't actually that long ago for me. And I and I get the drive, and I, and I want everything to be, in you know, safe and happy and... I'm all for them exploring and doing what they're going to do because they're freaking teenagers and hormones finally kicked in. And they, and she no longer rolls her eyes at me when I tell her like, Oh, at some point you're going to want to do this and I need you to be prepared. And here's how I use a condom. And uh, it's just, it's a very confusing time. And um, again, because my husband and I, he's like the cool chill dad. That's like too chill. And apparently I'm the, like, too controlling. Um, So it's a fun little dynamic that's happening. And I'm just curious, like, your opinion. A 15-and-a-half-year-old boy and an almost 15-year-old girl, like, I mean, having alone time, like, is that appropriate? I don't necessarily think it is. Whether or not it's appropriate for a 14, almost 15-year-old girl and her 16-year-old boyfriend to have alone time – they're going to have alone time, as you acknowledge. You said when you were younger and you wanted alone time or a little straight kid couple wanted alone time, they had to get creative. And maybe we learned important survival skills and coping mechanisms when we were young and had to sneak around behind our parents' back. But the alone time still happened. We still made that happen for ourselves. So I think you need to chill out a little bit. You need to tell yourself that alone time is going to happen. So what then? Go to your daughter and tell her that the price of alone time is long talks with mom and dad time because you want to go over again and again and again, particularly now, sexual safety, consent. You want to make sure the lines of communication are open, that if her boyfriend is pressuring her to do anything that she isn't comfortable doing or isn't ready to do, that she knows she can shut that down. She also knows she can call in the cavalry, mom and dad to help shut that down, that she can come to you. And 
Another price of alone time is trip to Planned Parenthood time and long-acting birth control time, not just condom on banana time. You need to get her on long-acting, effective, set-it-and-forget-it birth control. All that said, you're anxious. And I think you and your husband may have assumed different roles where you're the anxious one and he's the chill one, which means you're taking care of all the worrying for both of you and he's off the hook. That's not okay. You guys need to talk, not just to her. You need to speak with each other and come up with a plan. You say your daughter wiped her phone when you wanted to look at it. Good. I think everyone should wipe their phones every once in a while. Get rid of all those photographs that maybe you shouldn't have taken, particularly at age 14 if she's taken any. Get rid of all those text messages that you don't want lurking on your phone, on your device. Ask your friends to delete their message threads with you too so that they're not lingering on their phones. Ask her boyfriend yourself to occasionally delete their text messages because you don't think that's the way the world should work. You don't think that lovey, flirty texts between teenagers should be a part of their permanent record eternally. Remember when I said that part of the price of being alone, part of the price of alone time, if she wants it in your house, are long convos with mom and dad? Not just convos with her, convos with him. You get to talk to him about what he's doing in your house behind that closed door. You get to grill him. You get to set conditions for him being in your house. This is going to be tense. Your daughter's transition to young adulthood, perhaps even your daughter's transition, if she hasn't transitioned already, to becoming sexually active. That's tense because the stakes are high. Sexually transmitted infections, unplanned pregnancies, intimate partner violence, violations of consent. All of those things come bundled with relationships. And your daughter is inexperienced and flying blind into her first relationship. But, you know, she's not flying blind if mom and mom or mom and dad or dad and dad are there forcing conversations that the kid, your kid, my kid, probably doesn't want to have or didn't want to have. But your house, your rules. But you want to make sensible and forcible rules. You can't prevent your daughter, as you know, from finding ways to be alone with her boyfriend. You can make it safer for your daughter to be alone with her boyfriend by allowing her to be alone with her boyfriend in your house after hearing you out and after that trip to Planned Parenthood. Hi, Dan. I'm a 55-year-old woman from the San Diego area, and I'm wondering... What can I do if I get aroused too often? My sex drive is too strong. It's been a lifelong issue, but I thought it might get better, but it's actually getting worse. Sometimes I can't even go to sleep because I have to masturbate like five or six times in a row, and it's exhausting. And sometimes I have to masturbate in a public restroom because I'm out and about. It makes me feel disgusting, and I'm wondering what I can do about it. I do have sex partners, not super frequently, but it's the urgency uh, means I have to take care of it right away. What can I do about this problem? Joining me on my phone to help tackle this question, Debbie Herbenick, Dr. Debbie Herbenick, research scientist at Indiana University, sex educator at the Kinsey Institute, and author of numerous terrific books on sexuality, including Read My Lips, Great in Bed, and Because It Feels Good. Hey, Debbie, how you doing? I'm great, and you? 
Good, good. Uh, so this poor caller, you know, it feels good, but it feels good too often and too much of the time and in too distracting a way. Have you heard of cases like hers? Yes. We sometimes call them persistent genital arousal disorder or persistent sexual arousal syndrome. So um, this has been described for a while now, but it's not well understood. So what's the remedy? If it's not well understood, what's the prescription for someone who finds herself having to duck into bathrooms constantly to rub one out so that she can think clearly? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly seeing a doctor is helpful. There's some proportion of um, women, especially who have like this, you know, this recurrent sexual arousal who end up having these cysts at like the base of their spine. And if that's what it is, it's kind of an easier thing to address. It's the ones that that don't seem to have any precipitating factor and don't seem to have anything physical that are trickier. Um, there are some people who, when they look back, they realize, hey, this started after I had a certain kind of, you know, some some injury or accident or after I started taking a certain medication. There are some people who this happened um, after they started on an antidepressant. And then when they go off of it, after a period of time, it resolves, right? So that's an, an easier one to fix. So the libido comes roaring back after you go off the antidepressant and eventually it evens out in some cases. Yeah, in, in some cases. And for other people, actually going on antidepressants is what's helpful to resolving this, um, you know, this persistent arousal. When we were doing our, um, our corgasm research, and so this is the exercise-induced orgasm, you know, we also had some people, and I, I still hear from some of these people who um, maybe, you know, there seems to be something unique about their body. And they do a lot of what we would call like core demanding types of exercises. And at some point they can get into almost a rhythm in their lives where it starts as just sort of occasional orgasms from exercise. And then over time, they seem to have them really frequently and not just from, um, you know, really hardcore exercises in the gym, like doing 200 um, captain's chair leg lifts or something like that. But even from other things like pushing a grocery cart, you know, um, in the store or mopping, but just engaging their core in really interesting ways, uh, or rather in really mundane ways, but it produces this effect. And we, again, we don't really understand that. Um, so I, you know, I wish I had an easier fix for this, but seeing a doctor is a good place to start. Um, some people do have some relief from masturbation and other people don't. Um, but it's, uh, you know, doctors and sex therapists can sometimes be helpful, but we, we really just don't have a kind of a, a cure all for everybody. And if it is incredibly distracting and it's interfering with her life and making her unhappy, you're suggesting, or you're saying that potentially going on to antidepressants to treat just this is a legitimate use of antidepressants because it could take the edge off your libido or the caller's libido. It, yeah, it, it could for some, I mean, they, you know, again, seeing really what's going on with this particular person is going to be important. Um, you know, and, and then seeing if there's anything else happening, you know, every now and then we hear from people who have these kinds of situations and actually like the, the arousal isn't what's terrible, but it's what happens on top of it. So feeling aroused and then thinking like, I shouldn't be having these feelings or I shouldn't be having them if they're not a partner, about a partner, or I shouldn't have this and it makes me a bad person, um, especially for women, sometimes having this, this additional guilt or shame. And that additional anxiety can make can heighten sexual arousal. Oh, my God. So it creates a feedback loop where I feel guilty about the fact right. that I'm aroused and my feelings of guilt wind up making me feel more aroused and I feel more guilty and more aroused. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. Like just last week, I, I heard from a guy who I think that has a very similar thing going on. And he's had those, you know, the exercise orgasms. So he has all this re religious 
stuff, right? Where he mm-hmm. abstains from masturbation, abstains from sex with partners, abstains from all of that. Um, and is, is very clearly very anxious, you know, and ashamed about all of this. And it's creating this really um, difficult feedback loop. So I'm not saying this is what's happening for her. It may or may not be adding on to it. Um, but we, we often, often hear some additional layer of anxiety. Um, but you can also see how some people would just be stressed in general because it's not fun to like always be so aroused that it's distracting. And sometimes people, I think, dismiss this and they say, oh, like, poor you, you're just so aroused. I wish I could get aroused. Um, but, you know, we all sort of want a level of arousal, a level of desire that works in our life. And this level is clearly not working this well for this person in their life. Yeah, the temptation is to say, oh, gosh, you have an orgasm while you're pushing a grocery cart. I wish I had that superpower. I wish going to the grocery store was that fun for me. But it must be distracting and unnerving yeah. for many people. Yeah. I, bet, I bet most people who have that superpower aren't necessarily psyched about it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and I'm laughing because, I mean, this is, those things have happened to me before, too. And it's just like, it's weird, right? And you're just like, not again. So I get it at a professional level. I get it at a personal level. Um, I'm lucky not to have had this uh, to such a persistence where it was bothersome. But the body is a weird, is a weird beast. And I want to jump back to that. If you've had a cyst on the base of your spine, this could be an issue. Like the body is a weird beast. We have a lot of nerves that are sort of funneled through narrow bottlenecks in our body and they can get crossed or they can be impacted. So it's possible for someone to have a cyst that presses on a nerve that then results in this perception or reality of persistent arousal. That is a medical condition. Yes, absolutely. And it can be taken care of. Um, So, you know, so again, like getting to a healthcare provider who's experienced, who's knowledgeable, who's willing to um, I think kind of go down pathways with you to figure out what may be at the root of the um, persistent arousal is really critical. Dr. Debbie Herbenick, research scientist at Indiana University. Thank you for jumping on the phone today. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks. Hey, Dan. Uh, lesbian listener. Um, I have a general question about the fact that I am a 20-something lesbian. I've been out for almost 10 years now. I'm the kind of lesbian you can look at me and I don't really have to tell you that I'm gay. You kind of know. I have a lovely fiance, and I love her very much with all my heart and soul. But we are in a polyamorous relationship. So we do have an openness to our relationship in which if the opportunity presents itself uh, to, to be intimate with another person, we have rules in place. You know, we have to get permission ahead of time and all of that. But for the most part, we can sleep with other people. And I've had this internal struggle over the last few years because I am what's known as a gold star gay um, so I have never slept with a man and I would say probably a good 95% of me really doesn't want to um, I think you know I have a lot of important men in my life and I have no issues with men I'm not a man-hating lesbian but the anatomy kind of skeeves me out a little bit sometimes but there's always that 5% part of me that has always been curious Um, And that kind of regrets not, quote unquote, experimenting in college, where most people's experimenting is sleeping with someone of the same sex. My experimenting would have been sleeping with someone of the opposite sex. So my real question is more, I don't question whether or not that curiosity is wrong or bad in any way, but I do question if I should act on it. Um, You know, I know I have the opportunity with my fiance that if I did meet a guy who I like as a person and wanted to see if I could look past the anatomy um, and, and kind of cure that sense of curiosity, I have that option. I know she would let me do it. 
But should I go for it is the real question. Should you go for it? Should you, a lesbian who looks like a lesbian and has a lesbian fiance, you're in an open relationship, you're allowed to sleep with other people, should you sleep with a man person to satisfy your curiosity about what men people are like in bed? And implicit in that question, I think, is what are the risks in sleeping with a man person? Well, there are the risks that everyone runs when they're sleeping with men people. Men are testosterone-soaked dick monsters. Men can be violent. A lot of women have had a lot of women have had terrible experiences with men. Some of those women have been lesbian identified women or lesbian women who are curious. Men are dangerous. But then there's the danger of what this might mean for you, your sexual identity, your relationship. And I guess the risk is what if you try dick and you like dick? What if you try sleeping with a dick having man person and you kind of like it? See, when people talk about, oh, I'm curious about X and I want to do X, implicit in that is I'm going to get X out of my system. And that's kind of not how curiosity usually works in the sexual realm. You find something you're curious about, you try it, you like it, you kind of want to do it again. So I think that's what you need to really wrestle with before you go to the girlfriend after meeting maybe the guy who blips onto your mostly lesbian dar and you want to sleep with that guy. Think about what it'll mean, what the implications might be if that one-off with that one dude doesn't answer all your questions, doesn't satisfy your curiosity, but inflames perhaps a passion for occasionally sleeping with dick having dudes that you weren't consciously aware of. That can happen. Also, it could happen that you sleep with a dude and you're like, yeah, this is not for me. And your curiosity was morbid or idle or whatever. And what you learn sleeping with that dude is that you are now and always have been and would like to continue sleeping with women. That could also happen. Another risk is going to the future wife and telling her that the person that you're curious about sleeping with and under the rules of your open relationship, you can sleep with somebody else, but you have to talk about it first and get their permission first. And your fiancé may find the prospect of you sleeping with a man threatening. Some people do. I've met gay men who are partnered with bi guys who are kind of in denial about it and don't like to hear about it when their boyfriends or husbands find a woman attractive, much less want to sleep with a woman. Even guys I know who are in open relationships sometimes have a problem with that when they're with a bi guy, a bi male partner. Sometimes people who are gay or lesbian feel threatened or insecure about the cultural undertow that can pull a person who discovers their bi toward opposite sex relationships. Kind of parallels the fear that a lot of women have when they're partnered with guys who realize they're bi or come out to them as bi while in the relationship that they're going to be pulled toward homosexuality. Those fears are usually unfounded. Bisexuality, actually a thing, but commonplace. And your girlfriend or your fiancé may have those fears or may express those fears to you once you tell her that you are interested in sleeping with a guy. She could also turn around and say, so am I. You could wind up having a very hot three-way with some dude that works for not just you, but works for both of you after you have that conversation with your girlfriend. Sorry, fiancé. And I think you should have that conversation before that dude appears on the horizon. I think you should have that conversation with your girlfriend now about this curiosity of yours. Fingers crossed that you have a Yahtzee there and she is similarly curious and not threatened by this. 
And here's hoping that when you do sleep with the dude, whatever happens makes you happy and doesn't destabilize your life or your identity in a way that you don't want your life or identity destabilized. And that is an intentionally ambiguous statement. Hi, Dan. This is a female married, uh, living in a red state in the deep south. I have a question about my brother. Um, so my concern is that I guess I just don't know if I'm going to be nosy if this is appropriate. Uh, he is this male, buried straight. On social media, I am seeing an awful lot of pictures of him with another woman. And I know I haven't met her, but I've spoken with her on the phone. He's introduced her as a friend. And she seems like a perfectly lovely person. But so is my sister-in-law, and I and I love her. And I and my sister-in-law has never been big on social media, so I don't know if the lack of connection between my brother and his wife on social media relative to this other friendship relationship is just well, that's just them, or if there's really something going on, and my brother has some sort of extramarital relationship. And the problem is, is I don't know if I should even ask. I don't know if it's any of my business. My my brother and I do have a good relationship. And I, if I were in the reverse situation, I think I would basically have opened up myself to be asked by my brother. I, if I do ask, I want to make sure that I ask in the least judgmental way. I don't know if they have an open relationship. I, do, I don't know if they're having trouble. I don't know if they're on the verge of divorce. I don't know if they're separated. Um, they're certainly presenting themselves to the family like they're still married and together. But I just, I don't know. And the only way for me to know is to ask. But I don't know if it's appropriate for me to ask. So help me, Dan. Do I, do I ask? Do I keep my mouth shut? If I do ask, is there a good non-judgmental way to ask? You say you have a good relationship with your brother. I assume that means that you and your brother talk. You talk about things. You ask each other questions. You make statements. He asks you about your life. You ask him about his life. And this person all over his social media kind of invites the question. So what's up? What's up with this person? I see that she's on your Instagram a lot. And you guys seem pretty close. So dot, dot, dot. And then see what he says. Your brother and your sister-in-law could be in an open relationship. That would be a very open relationship and an open relationship that they'd take in public if your brother was free to post pictures of his perhaps girlfriend to his social media. Your curiosity, again, is understandable and how public he's being about his friendship with this woman opens the door for you to ask the question. Now, the problem with asking this question is, judgment or shaming will be inferred because most people are not particularly positive about open or polyamorous relationships, if indeed that's what's going on. He and his wife could be on the rocks. They could be separated. They could both be seeing other people. Again, the only way to find out what's going on for sure is to ask the question. But it's hard to frame the question in such a way that the person being asked that question isn't going to read shame or judgment into it because – People in open relationships get a lot of shame, they're judged, and can be reflexively defensive. So just preface the question with, hey, I'm 
fine with what's ever going on with you and this woman who seems lovely. Maybe you're friends. Maybe there's something more there. Just curious. Just curious what's going on. And please know that whatever's going on, you can talk to me and I love you and support you. And then see what he says. But I think, again, you have a right. Well, perhaps not a right, but an allowance to ask this question. You and your brother are close. You chat. And these posts have opened the door. Hi, Dan. 36-year-old married lesbian calling for some advice. My wife and I have been married for about a year and a half together for about five and a half. Um, always monogamous with the understanding that our marriage would likely be opened up at one point, but we would first have a conversation about it. So about two weeks ago, my wife woke me up in the morning and told me that after I had gone to bed, her and her friend made out and then went outside to talk about their feelings and revealed that they have romantic feelings for one another that they want to explore. Um, My wife asked this friend to leave and needed to talk to me about it. When she told me, I I think she was hoping that I would also be into the friend, and and I wish I was too because that would make this all a lot simpler, but unfortunately I'm not. Um, I feel pretty put off by the whole thing and the drama that this is bringing to my marriage, so I I don't have any interest in this woman. The conversations that follow have led to the agreement that we need to open up our relationship, but what I would like to have happen is for it to happen together slowly and intentionally with frequent checking in on how we're both feeling about it, starting with, you know, a relationship that we pursue together starting out sexually and and working our way to emotionally and then maybe one day having separate relationships altogether. But I feel like she's asking me to go from here to there um, overnight and I just, I can't get there overnight. She is unwilling to take a step back from this woman and this is not a, a marriage ending deal breaker for me opening our relationship. So unfortunately I feel pretty forced to, allow her to continue moving forward with this woman. Um, The alternative she gave me was separating, which to her meant um, not moving out, but basically being allowed to do whatever we want. Um, And I don't want to separate. So staying together and agreeing for this to happen is allowing me to make some rules about how it happens. I don't know, Dan, I just feel resentful and hurt that my feelings aren't being considered enough really to, she's just, kind of doing what she wants and forcing me to go along with it and it doesn't feel consensual and it doesn't feel like how I had imagined it. I guess just any advice on how to move forward and and get over my sadness and my resentment would be much appreciated. Can I ask you a terrible question? Sure. Do you have kids with your partner? With your wife? No, no, no kids. Okay, that's a relief. (laughs) <laughs> uh, sorry to laugh, but that, that's, a, that's a bitter sort of friendly, we're all in this together laugh. What your wife is doing is kind of not acceptable, kind of an asshole move. She's basically giving you an ultimatum. Like we had talked about arriving at this destination of, you know, open and potentially having romantic connections or relationships with other people. Uh, gradually, that was the process we sort of both agreed to if we were going to get there. And I want to get there right now tomorrow. And if you can't get there right now tomorrow with me, I'm prepared to leave this relationship. Right. That's what separation means. Separation isn't like you're putting your marriage on hold and still living together and still married. And now you both can do whatever you want without the other getting to say boo about it. 
Like there's right. not an on-off switch on your relationship, which your wife seems to think there is. We have since started counseling, um, both individually and and together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've taken separation off of the table. Okay. If, if you've listened to the show, you've heard me talk about people who are PUDs, poly under duress. Yes, absolutely. This is an open, you know, you you can have sex with other people. I can have sex with other people. We'll do it discreetly. It might be D-A-D-T. It'll be at a low roar. This is I want to have, I want to explore a romance with this person. I want to date this person. I want to feel a connection to this person. That's polyamory. And most people who are poly were open first, eventually arrived at poly. But some people who are poly and happily poly had it imposed on them in an ultimatum sort of situation and are now happy to be poly. That doesn't make the imposition and the ultimatum okay. That was a, you know, almost invariably an unwelcome move and a selfish move on the part of the partner who issued the ultimatum. But sometimes people work through, live through, power through the bad feelings about the ultimatum having been issued and come out on the other side content, if still maybe, you know, a scar or a stone in their shoe for the rest of their life about how they got there, but they're happy to be there. You know, I, I, right. I, I don't want to give a, you know, a pass to everybody out there who's going to like listen to the sound of my voice and then run home and issue an ultimatum around opening the relationship and being poly. But I have to, to speak the truth of, you know, most people who are in open relationships started in closed relationships and a great number of people who are in polyamorous relationships, at least at first, one or both didn't imagine that that's what they wanted or were ready for when they right. kind of found their way there. The comparison I, I've used with friends is, you know, your wife moved you into, bought a house, moved you into it without consulting you. And you can be angry yeah. about that fact. Like that's not a thing that you do in a, in a marriage, in a relationship. You don't buy a house without telling your spouse that that's what you're doing. And you can have your anger about, you know, my wife bought a house and didn't consult with me. And you can have your anger about it. You can also look around that house and go, is this a house I want to live in? And that's a separate judgment. But your right. wife has to own up to the fact that buying the house the way that she did was unfair to you. And then you two, once she's made her apologies and once she's owned the unfairness of that and acknowledged your pain, then you can have a different conversation about whether you want to keep this house, live in this house. Right. And I feel like that's kind of where we're at. Um, she, you know, kind of has compared this to coming out and recognizing this side of her that she doesn't feel like she should have to suppress, which, I mean, a part of me can identify with that and try to be sympathetic, but also asking me to just get on board with, you know, being Holly all of a sudden when we've never been non-monogamous at all. Right. I've never even seen her kiss another woman. Well, it's, there's a difference between having to suppress this and and acting on it, right? right. So you can say, I want to eat the ice cream. And there's a difference between I want to eat the ice cream and you have to provide me with all the ice cream on the planet, right? right. You know, your wife can yeah. say, I, what I've realized about myself over time in our monogamous relationship is that maybe monogamy wasn't the right model for me. And maybe I shouldn't have made a monogamous commitment. I know that now. How do we reverse engineer our relationship so that we're both happy and we both feel safe and comfortable in it and can both, you know, fully actualize who we are sexually. Right. And it may not be possible for you guys to do that and stay married. Okay. I mean, I, I think we both, when we talked about before we got married, first saw 
not being monogamous forever. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of good things that can come out of being non-monogamous. I just, this isn't how I saw it starting. And okay, well, I, I don't know how to just get on board. Right. Well, I don't want, I don't want to encourage you to pull the plug. I, I'm not telling you to get a divorce and I'm not telling you that this relationship is doomed because as I've already said, there's a lot of people in polyamorous relationships who are happy about it, who weren't happy about it at first. And it was really one person was driving it and, and forcing the issue. And the other person was trying to catch up and adjust because they didn't want to exit the marriage. And in the end, they're not just happy that they saved the marriage. They're happy to now be in a polyamorous relationship and they're benefiting from it personally and they're content but that takes time and your wife has to give you time and give you space and own what she's done that is unfair. She made out with the woman. She presented you with a fait accompli. She presented you with an ultimatum. She threatened to leave you. You're naturally going right. to be a little bit flinchy and scared and feel insecure in the relationship and not like you're her priority anymore. Right. And, and if you are, she needs to prove to you that you are. And that means you can, you know, there's nothing poly going on right now, but we are moving in that direction. You know, she can prove to you that, that you're her first priority by putting this woman aside for the moment and, and, and having sex with other people aside for the moment. And you can prove to her that she's your priority by having a conversation about the steps you two are going to take together to get to the place where she wants to be. And at the beginning of the relationship, you acknowledged that you would probably want to be, which is in an open relationship, but her poor yeah. judgment, like your wife's poor judgment and the way this rolled out, like we're all three hanging out. You went to bed. I made out with her. And I tell you that night or the next morning that this is going to, how it's going to have to be. Is she the sort of person who can have a polyamorous relationship, have that allowance from you to not just fuck somebody else once in a while, but to have a connection and a relationship. Can she do that and balance your needs, your primacy your need for security with her desire to be with this other person romantically and, and devote time to that other person. And how much time can you imagine her devoting to another person and romantic attention without feeling deprived yourself or cheated? Right. Not cheated on, but cheated. I don't know. I mean, I don't know the answer to that. I've never done this. I don't, I know there needs to be very clear boundaries. I just don't even know what they should be. Because they're all past my comfort level. They need to be clear boundaries. Sometimes you have to step outside your comfort zone to, to, to save a relationship. And then you get comfortable with right. something new and different and unexpected. Okay. You know, we have fears about opening a relationship. And sometimes the only way to confront those fears or, or see that those fears were baseless is to be on the other side of those fears is to have, you know, lived them. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot that we can get out of it. I just, I hope that we can get there. Together. <sighs> Together. Yeah, absolutely. Together. Good luck. Thank you. I really appreciate your call. Thanks for all the work that you do. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Hello, Dan. Uh, this is a 38-year-old straight male from uh, the Midwest. Uh, I'm in an open relationship and uh, my girlfriend is married or we're going through um, some difficulties now because she a few months ago had sex with her good friend when I was at her place. 
And then that continued to happen twice. And I represented at the time that was kind of cool with it. Uh, and then it seemed to have like five, there'd be more over time. We tried to put forth like certain like rules, at least that you could only spend like sort of a certain amount of time with him. But then other things sort of unexpectedly came up and stuff. And she's married and the understanding was that we were in an open relationship, but she actually doesn't have any physical relationship with her husband. So uh, it just seemed like I think maybe I had the expectation uh, of monogamy. So I don't know. I know you're monogamish and I know you have experience advising people in poly situations. I was wondering if there's, you know, what, what would you suggest sort of deal? With, with jealousy as an issue because I really love this woman. I'm poly-minded myself, but I always I think I'm more poly-minded from uh, doing you know from from me seeing other people. Um, so I'm just trying to trying to work that out that that kind of hypocritical uh, stance. So you're poly-minded in the sense that it's okay for you to sleep with other women, but not so poly-minded as to believe it's okay for your girlfriend who is married to sleep with other men. That's not really poly-minded. That's sexist double standard-minded. That's misogynistic patriarchal-minded. It was common throughout most of human history for men to sleep with multiple partners and for men to not allow their female partners the same freedom or license and for men to be extremely threatened when their female partners slept with other people at the same clip or at all or even expressed a desire or an attraction to another man and men would typically flip out. And there you are sort of low-key flipping out knowing that you're being hypocritical. So what do you do? So when it comes to poly or open relationships – There tends to be a lot more talking than fucking, and it's the extra talking that makes the extra fucking or the extra partners possible. You need to talk with your girlfriend about your assumptions and your expectations, and you need to own that your assumptions and expectations were self-serving and sexist, and you need to do the work of reprogramming yourself. If you are going to be poly and not a polygamist, It has to be okay for her to sleep with other guys too if you are sleeping with other women. And again, you went into this relationship knowing she was married to another man. You say you assumed or perhaps she put it out there that she wasn't having a sexual relationship with her husband. But then this guy came along, this friend came along and she wanted to sleep with him. Sounds like she checked with you because you say you let her know it was okay for her to sleep with this other guy. But then she actually did it and you got angry. So when you talk to her about your jealousy, like own up to your feelings, but you're going to have to own what's shitty about them and double standardy about them. And you're going to have to ask her to give you a little time and a little space and perhaps hold your hand a bit to help you work through this and get past it. Because if you can't work through it and you can't get past it, then you're not poly-minded. Then you shouldn't be entering into ethical non-monogamous relationships. Perhaps you should seek out the kinds of relationships that many men Many straight men throughout history have sought and had where their wives or girlfriends were monogamous and they cheated. But you don't want to be a cheater. You want to be poly. You want to be a good and decent dude, which means you're going to have to do some work on yourself again to get yourself there. And you can ask your girlfriend, your married girlfriend, for her help 
What I don't think you can reasonably insist on is that your married girlfriend refrain from sleeping with other guys while you sleep with other women. And I don't think it's fair for you to impose rules as some people who believe themselves to be poly-minded, think they want an open relationship or want an open relationship for themselves but not for their partners. I don't think it'd be fair for you to impose so many rules and restrictions on your girlfriend that it becomes practically impossible, functionally impossible for her to actually sleep with anybody else. But circling back to your question, how do you deal with jealousy? A poisonous kind of sexist, misogynistic jealousy in this instance that could destroy your relationship? Well, you've recognized it. You never really said that this was your problem. Start there. This is my problem, and I need to work on this. I would like your help. Maybe your girlfriend can give you a few months where she's not going to sleep with anybody else, sometimes in open relationships. One or more of the people involved will close down sexual contacts with others out of consideration for their partner's feelings or insecurities on the condition and on the understanding that their partner is actively working through those insecurities. And they just need a little breather. They just need a little space. So they can come out the other side and be comfortable with it. But if you don't move in that direction, if you don't get comfortable with it, if you don't get comfortable with the idea that there's one set of rules for both of you or for all of you, since this is a poly relationship involving more than two people, yeah, then you're not cut out for poly, at least not at the moment. Not even cut out, it would seem, for an open relationship. Not at the moment. Not until you fix this. Not until you get past it. Not until you reach into your motherboard and tear out this sexist paternalistic, misogynistic double standard that you're laboring under, laboring under right now in an open relationship. Yeah, no, that's a sign that you aren't ready to be in an open relationship. The problem is you are already in an open relationship. So what do you do? Well, you could end this relationship or you could ask your girlfriend to put up with your jealousy while you work through it, dismantle, diffuse, and disarm it. But if in the end you can't, and you need to exit this relationship. All right, we're going to read your tweets. And unsurprisingly, there are a lot of tweets about my advice to the woman whose husband, after seven years, keeps pissing on the floor despite her protests in the middle of the night when he goes to the bathroom. And she prods through it when she goes to the bathroom and she is pissed. Jennifer Laurie tweets, Dan, how could you have not told the inconsiderate and lazy man who pees on the floor to just wipe the floor after he pees? Come on, P.S., Love you. Larissa tweets, I'm surprised, Dan, that you failed to suggest that this capable adult peer clean up after himself, grab a mop, some baby wipes, whatever, my dude. Your family deserves better than a public urinal. And Vima Manfredo tweets, episode 666 of the Savage Lovecast, the peer. The simplest solution is clear. Clean up after yourself. Pee on the seat, clean it. Pee on the floor, clean it. Really that simple. We hear you. Nancy has heard you. Nancy actually begs that no one else call in with any more feedback about that particular question. She is sick of listening to everyone make the same point, which is that this asshole should clean up after himself. You know what? I agree with all of you. And the caller has been saying that to this asshole for seven years to no effect. My advice to get a urinal, to get a plastic urinal that he can stand and stick his dick in and pee and get it all in the bottle is a hallelujah pass, a desperate measure for desperate times. Not the first thing that I would advise someone whose partner is peeing on the floor, but literally the last thing I would advise. And it is the last thing that she can do. She's tried screaming. She's tried yelling. Nothing has worked. Maybe this will work. And if it doesn't work well, then there's divorce.
Moving on, Dance Remember tweets, the way at fake Dan Savage pronounces the word vulnerable is my kink. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Is there something odd about the way I pronounce it? Vulnerable? I hadn't heard. And finally, Aurora Erratic tweets, I miss the old days of the Savage Lovecast when Dan talked slow enough that I could understand him. Even the theme song was slower then. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. You know, if the theme song is speeding up, I don't think it's us. I think maybe you accidentally pressed that one and a half time or two time speed button on your podcast app. You might want to check that out. All right. Your response calls, none of which are about that asshole peeing on the floor. Hey, Dan, this is a response to the lady whose boyfriend went psycho and sent photos of her house sitting gang to her bosses to get her in trouble. The reason he freaked out is because he got humiliated. And humiliated men are fucking dangerous. I don't necessarily think it was the right thing to tell her to basically coddle his emotions to keep him from blowing up. But humiliated men are the men who beat their partners and go on mass shooting rampages. And frankly, I'm really fucking sick and tired of dealing with humiliated men not being able to handle their shit and punishing everybody else for it. So, guys... Learn to deal with humiliation and insecurity and stop taking it out on all the people around you. Hey, this is for episode 666, the woman who has the higher libido than her husband of two years. And now she's wondering if there's something abnormal about her and he's not a very giving partner and he doesn't seem to enjoy giving pleasure for its own sake. Dan said he was here from the future. Oh, honey, I am here from your future It's not going to get better. It's not even going to stay this bad. It's going to get worse and worse. And this is not an issue of you having a mismatch in libido, although you might. This is a man who is rejecting you non-verbally over and over again. And that rejection will chip away and chip away at your self-esteem. It will destroy your confidence. It will seep into resentment. There's nothing good that's going to come of this. He's telling you in a ton of different little ways that he is not interested in having sex with you. He is not interested in making sure that it feels good for you, even if he doesn't get anything out of it. He is not interested in learning how to be a better sexual partner. And on top of it all, he seems to be gaslighting you or attempting really hard to pathologize your normal, healthy sex drive. This is really, really bad. Please consider, if not a lot of marriage counseling, leaving this marriage. Hi, Dan. I called a few weeks ago in a Burning Man marriage with not enough sex. And after talking to you, you gave me the bravery and the courage to actually listen to myself and stop lying to myself and leave my marriage. And I just want to thank you for that. Since we spoke, I've filed for divorce. I've moved on. And now I can have the best sex of my life forever. Thank you so much for changing my life. I so appreciate it. Congratulations on this new chapter in your life. We're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. The deadline for submitting your film to Hump, my Dirty Little Film Festival, approaches. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit for information about making a dirty little porno for Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Debbie Herbenick on Twitter at Debbie Herbenick. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian and me and the Tech Savvy At Rescue. And it's, we'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading and thank you to all the guys out there who clean up after themselves after they pee on the floor. We see you. <laughs>